Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we'll be hearing about the number 10 priority, individualizing surgery. We will hear from spine surgeon Dr. James Harrop and one of his patients, Daniel Simpson, a person living with DCM, as well as neurologist Dr. Lindsay Tetro. My name is Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. And my name is Dr. Michelle Starkey, scientist and director of myelopathy.org. This is AO Spine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters. Welcome to this special podcast series with AO Spine, covering the top research priorities that emerged from the AO Spine Recode DCM. This was a process that brought together people living and working with DCM from all over the world to establish what the top 10 most important unanswered research questions in DCM are. Perhaps you could give us a bit more information about why this is important, Ben. Well, I think the aim of this project and prioritization in general in any walk of life is to try and increase productivity to bring about those changes more quickly. And what we've done here is bring that global perspective together to really identify some critical questions that if we just amass our time, energy and investment into, hopefully we can answer them very quickly. And so the idea behind this podcast series is really to try and help share the message of these top 10 research priorities, because unless people are aware of them, they're not going to get researched and those answers won't follow. That's right. And in today's episode, we will discuss the final priority in the top 10. Number 10, individualizing surgery. Or as the full research question reads, are there clinical and imaging factors that can help a surgeon select who should undergo surgical decompression in the setting of DCM? At what stage of the disease is surgery the preferred management strategy? And to summarize what we do know about this question, I spoke to Dr. Lindsay Tetro, now a resident in neurology, but formerly a doctoral research student with Dr. Michael Failing's research group. I have approached degenerative cervical myelopathy from a research point of view and now more from a neurology point of view, but it was very eye-opening to see what some of the patients had to say about the knowledge gaps and some of their experiences with their own condition. You've been an integral part of this project, having been our information specialist. We're discussing today in particular a question around individualizing surgery. This is something that you have a lot of perspective on, particularly with the work that you've you've done with, with Dr. Failings in terms of trying to identify factors or information that can help inform when to offer surgery or indeed predict the outcome from surgery. In my opinion, there are only three ways to evaluate important predictors of surgical outcomes. With any research question, the first step is to explore the existing literature to see what previous studies are available and what their conclusions are. The second way of identifying important predictors is by asking the professionals that manage patients with DCM every day. And then the final way is through primary research studies. And so these studies should include a large sample of patients with DCM that are followed for at least up to one or two years. 
and uh, where there's a substantial data collected, uh, including you know demographic information, imaging characteristics, surgical details, and then various measures of outcomes. And so I guess then, then the next question is, how does this information inform surgical decision-making? And to date, I think it's been pretty difficult to translate some of my research or some of the research that's out there about predictors of outcome into a model that will dictate who should and who should not undergo surgery. So to my knowledge, uh, there is nothing in the literature that directly guides us in uh, who should and who should not undergo surgery, but there are a few important principles. So the first applies to really any individual undergoing surgery, and that is, you know, is the patient medically optimized or suitable to undergo a procedure with low, medium, or high risk? So this comes down to their comorbidities. What's their cardiac function like? What's their pulmonary function like? Um, How does their kidney and liver look? And so these are all important questions that must be asked before a patient even is considered for surgery. The second is, uh, with respect to DCM, is there anything muddying our clinical picture? So does the patient have comorbidities that could account for some of his or her neurological deficit? And are we sure this patient actually has myelopathy? So the, the important ones here are, you know, is there a diabetic or alcoholic neuropathy? Is there a concomitant lumbar spinal stenosis? Is the patient deficient in B12? And so these are questions that must be addressed before a patient is selected for surgery. And then third is, what has the patient's disease course look like and how severe is the patient's myelopathy? So has the patient had bilateral hand numbness for the last five years that really isn't impacting their activities of daily living and has not progressed? And if that's the case, then a watch and wait approach may be reasonable. But in the case of a patient who has rapidly worsening bilateral arm paresthesia that's progressing to reduced manual dexterity, and say they're a penist or someone who uses their hands in their, in their day-to-day life, then you know, surgery may be the best treatment option to halt disease progression and restore this function. I think then what you're alluding to there is that quite intensive process you've been through of identifying concepts from literature, from opinion, and testing those in, in available data sets. But still, it's not going to be able to provide a perfect solution to what comes down sometimes to really individual decision making based on that individual in front of you. For sure. And I think one of the most important questions is what does what does a patient want? And I'm sure surgeons have dealt with this question time and time again that you know, a patient is very hesitant to undergo surgery of their cervical spine because of the complications that might be associated or at least the perceived complications that might be associated with it. So I think, what does the patient want? It's ultimately up to them to make an informed decision about whether they want to proceed with a procedure that is not void of risk. So one of the themes that I take away from from reading much of your research, Lindsay, is how our understanding of the role or significance of signal intensity change in on a spinal cord imaging on MR has evolved. 
Right. So I think, as you said, the the importance of hyperintensity on a T2 weighted image, our understanding of this has changed from the perspective of diagnosis as well as prognostication. In my research, the absence of signal change on a T2 weighted image does not exclude a diagnosis of degenerative cervical myelopathy. You know, my perspective is certainly that, that signal change has had a lot of weight put on it, particularly historically. And actually, you know, the work that you found was that actually when you come down to those prognostic models, particularly in that data set, a lot of the imaging factors, in fact, I think in the final iteration, none of them came into that final model of prognostication. Right. So even even in the systematic review of the literature where there have been several studies that have addressed signal change, there was nothing to conclude that it was an important prognostic factor. Another thing that came from much of the work that you've done in terms of identifying that importance of, of time to treatment. Absolutely. I think duration of symptoms uh, is a very difficult factor to study because patients sometimes are unclear when their actual symptoms started, even in a milder form. And so I've I found that has been a hard factor to assess. But based on the results of my studies, it seems like duration of symptoms is an important predictor of uh, surgical outcome. We've talked through some of your your key findings and that sort of very data-intensive approach to finding factors and, and, and identifying their role for surgical decision-making, but also prognostication. How do you think going forward we can start to bridge that gap to, to generate the data that can really meaningfully offer support for decision-making on an individual patient level? So I think this question is not going to be easy to answer. I think if it was easy, it probably already would have been answered or at least attempted. I, I think it's going to require the integration of professional opinions of the people who deal with these patients every single day and integrating that with indirect evidence. And what I mean by indirect evidence is evidence that does not directly answer the question, but can be used to rationalize certain recommendations. And so before we can develop a model or put together an algorithm on how to individualize surgery, I think we need to answer the question of you know, what is the optimal management for mild myelopathy? Is there any clinical or imaging factors that can help make this decision? And then are there any biomarkers out there that we haven't studied, either in the form of CSF, advanced imaging biomarkers, any genetic factors that are important um, in terms of detecting subtle disease progression, um, which would point towards surgery as the optimal treatment. So I think there's a bit uh, of work that needs to be done kind of outside the main question before we can actually attack the question itself, if that makes any sense. No, it does. So I think, you know, integrating new forms of variables and data, you know, genetics, imaging, other biomarkers, and integrating that with all of the data that we have, the opinions, and I think, I think those models will come. I think, you know, if we look for examples of success outside of our field, then, you know, algorithmic approaches to these sorts of decisions have been developed very readily, easily, if you like, you know, things like the management of 
of stroke or, or coronary artery disease, there are big data sets. A lot of these variables have been factored in and, and they can make very informed decisions for that individual in front of them. Right, absolutely. And those are uh, two topics that have been extensively studied. And I think the reason they were able to make such fluid algorithms is because they know a lot about you know, the diagnosis and the optimal management of those conditions. So Lindsay has already spent quite a lot of time grappling with this research priority. She certainly has. I think she speaks from incredible experience, you know, more than 100 published articles in this area now. And some of the findings that she's identified have really changed our perspective. I think some of the key themes are recognising the limitations of conventional MRI imaging, but also the importance of time to treatment in terms of improving outcomes. But what she also alludes to is the fact that despite this, we still don't have all the answers. Absolutely. And I think that's why this question is such a priority. What we want to get to is is real precision medicine, identifying the details that we really need to make the right decision for the person in front of us. Yeah. And one of her statements really stuck out to me as an illustration of this. She said, I think one of the most important questions is what does the patient want? And this is so true, isn't it? And interestingly, that's exactly the same message that comes from our next guest, Dr. James Harrop, Professor of Neurological and Orthopaedic Surgery at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. So I want to talk a little bit about a particular case uh, and an individual patient that's also shared his experience with us called, called Dan Simpson. When you first met him, what was going through your head? What was your sort of thought process? The first thing that is obvious is Dan had a dog with him, a seeing eye dog. You know, one of the things about being a surgeon is you have to understand that patients have different perspectives and goals. And I think that was one of the hardest things I learned as a resident and a physician. And it wasn't really until I was in attending that I really picked up on it. And that's one of the problems with myelopathy. It makes you from a independent, free caring person to loss of a lot of things we as younger people take for granted, eating, walking opening doors, going to the bathroom, climbing stairs. But with Dan, I guess the big thing I wanted to say is I walked in the room and I recognized that he himself probably has a different set of outcomes and his goals might not be what I see in the quote typical patient. And the first thing I need to do is understand what his goals are for surgery. And what did you find out listening and looking at him that that he really needed and wanted? Well, it was interesting because for him, his biggest issue was this sensation on his fingers. To you and I, the average myelopathy person will talk to you and they'll say, hey, my fingers have a little bit of marbly feeling or, or something of that. And they'll be more concerned about their gait, their balance, or their handwriting. But for him, his whole existence was his fingertips in the sense that he could no longer read Braille. At the point I saw him, I think he was losing his ability to read Braille. And again, as your average adult male who's just looking at it, you go, oh, you got a little bit of sensory loss on your fingertips. It's kind of a big operation. Are you sure you really want to get a big operation? And just to dial in on that, is this someone that would have been categorized, say, as a a mild myelopathy? It would be mild myelopathy in the sense that really all he had was his, his fingers were a little numb. So again, if that happened to you or me, we might we might not even go to a doctor. And you got to remember, your average doctor 
seeing a patient come in with my fingertips are a little numb, aren't going to go, oh, you must have spinal cord compression in the back of your neck. And so the his physicians that worked him up, I got to give him a lot of credit because he didn't have any strength problems. He didn't have any other sensory problems. He didn't have any gait problems. And so if you looked at him without a very focused eye on what his goals are, you would say, this guy is 99.9% normal. Why would you even think about operating on him? Then I examined him and he did have spinal cord dysfunction. He had what we call long track signs and he did have the start of subtle gait issues. And then the third piece, we looked at his MRI. And the interesting thing I've learned over the years is MRIs can be variable all over the place. You can have someone who has the worst myelopathy and have an MRI that doesn't look that bad because they have potentially a very sensitive spinal cord. And then you can have other people that have a horrible looking MRI and be normal. His MRI, he did have significant spinal cord compression. And another observation I've made over the years is that if you have pressure up higher at the two, three, three, four area, you tend to be more symptomatic than if you have it down lower at C67, C71 in terms of your long track signs. And so when you put his whole piece together, you have a guy who is completely losing his independence for something, again, in him was drastically important. But for other people, even myself as a surgeon, I would probably not be, oh my God, I need to get an operation. But his livelihood being lost because he's a writer and he had a very severe amount of cord compression. Dad mentions in his interview the conversations about front plus or minus back surgery. And that was something that he was he was nervous about because he, he talks about his keen interest in, in singing. So how did you approach that decision making around, you know, what sort of operation he would need? It's interesting. One of the, the other benefits of at least my practice is I get a lot of second opinions. I think you need to educate people on what the problem is. And I think second opinions, and this is for my all the patients out there, get another opinion because you can only learn more. And, and, and I think it's absolutely great to get another opinion. And I tell all my patients to get another opinion because a more educated patient is the best thing a surgeon can have. So Dan's problem was he had what we call congenital stenosis, which means he has a very small hole where his, his spinal cord was. On top of that, he had a disc herniation up at C3-4 pressing on his spinal cord. And so when you put his whole puzzle together, you could operate him from the front, you could operate on him from the back, you could operate him from the front and the back. My approach to him was, well, why don't we do it from the backside? Because I thought we could decompress his spine enough and his spinal cord would float back. Because again, remember I said he had congenital stenosis. And that would avoid him having to get an anterior operation because of the risk of an anterior operation. And the risk go up a little higher as you go up higher in the neck. And I usually tell all my patients, 100% of them will have some degree of swelling discomfort. But I was hopeful that we could avoid that operation and just do it from the backside. And so did you think that your decision there had been influenced by by Dan being so clear about this concern about his voice and, and his singing? Absolutely. That's fascinating. And, and and just going into that then on, on the numbness side, were you, you pretty confident that was, was going to come back? He was going to be able to read again, fundamentally see again? So it's interesting. Sensory stuff does not come back great. But if you go back and look at Dan's MRI, and this is the other reason I decided to do it from the back on him, 
is because another option would just do to do it from the front. The way our spinal cord is designed, our sensory fibers are all in the back of the spinal cord. And when you looked at his MRI, he had a, a buckling of what we call the ligamentum flavum that was pressing into his spinal cord. And my thought was, if I could get the pressure off the back side of his spinal cord, that in itself should help the posterior columns is where his sensory fibers are. And so, you know, I had multiple different opinions of why I wanted to go from the back. This is the best way we can do your, your operation and get the best result. Fascinating. That's really interesting because I, I, my overall junior perspective is that the sensory symptoms don't come back. I think you're totally right. Um, if you look at my whole bell curve of, of patients throughout the year, Dan is rare, but I think Dan presented much, much earlier than the normal patient because his sensation awareness was so much greater. And that's sort of the whole goal of this, this. If you step back and say, okay, what's the goal of the Recode project? It's really to get people informed for them to understand what the symptoms are, to seek out treatment earlier. So if they have a problem, we can intervene and maximize their recovery. If we look at this priority then around how can we individualize surgery, what pieces of information do surgeons need? What, what would your perspectives be on that? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think for, from a surgical point of view, again, we need to pull together the whole piece. We got to remember our goal is to take care of what the patient wants and what their objective is. What I've learned is you can never guess what a patient wants. You need to ask them. Some people want to get rid of the pain. Some people want their hand better. Dan's point was, I only want my fingertips better. So I think the first thing is for the surgeon and the patient to align their goals. And I think that's a huge part of it. So as a patient, you need to make sure your surgeon understands, this is what I want. This is what's important to me. Obviously, you've got a lot of experience uh, of looking and treating myelopathy, and there's lots of perspectives that you can bring to your decision-making. Are there still key areas of uncertainty that you face that you just you don't really have that surety about which way you should go? That is my daily struggle, and, and I see a lot of very complicated patients where I don't know, A, if they have any myelopathy, and B, if I operate on them, will they get better? Because you got to remember, from a surgeon perspective, the worst thing I can do is give you all the risks of a surgery and none of the benefits. You know, medicine has been great in that we're extending the lives of everyone, but there's a lot of other issues, neurologic conditions that can mimic a myelopathy. Number two is there's a dynamic component of a myelopathy, meaning motion, that we haven't totally figured out. And while MRIs are very good, they're usually with patients in a supine position where a lot of patients might not be pressing on their spinal cord. So I think that's one piece we really need to tease out. And the third part is if you do the same operation on the same MRI, what it looks like, you get different results. So it'd be nice if we could have some piece where I could tell the patient, your prognosis of a surgery is going to be this much recovery versus that much recovery. Because I think it would help some people decide on what do they want to do if they knew potentially what their outcome would be. And so I think bringing that again to the research priority, individualizing surgery, how do you think researchers should go about approaching answering this question? We're trying to do that by redefining what a myelopathy is and what a cervical myelopathy patient is. Uh, because if you go back, we don't understand exactly 
what the whole group entails. And I think once we get a better definition and we can be more black or white on different areas, it's going to help us categorize them. Because as we categorize them, then we can see, hey, does this population do better with this surgery? Does this age group with this problem do better with that surgical approach? Do you need to operate on that patient with that problem? And right now, we sort of throw everything in one big container. People are getting older, so there's getting to be a much greater number of patients with cervical myelopathy, and their goals are changing, which means patients now do not want to have limitations. And so I think we need to do a better job, meaning us surgeons and researchers, understanding and breaking down myelopathy and giving the patients the answers they're striving for of what's my future look like and what are my options. So now to get a different perspective on that same story. The perspectives, of course, of the person living with DCM, Dan Simpson himself. Dan is a writer, and I'm looking at the dedication he wrote to Jim Harrop in a copy of his book of poetry he subsequently published, School for the Blind. The dedication from Dan to Dr. Harrop reads, Thank you for giving me back the ability to travel safely, see the world with my hands, and especially read Braille. I think of you every day. Here's Dan telling his own story. I was noticing some tingling in my hands and that kind of stayed the same for, you know, maybe a couple of months. And, and then I felt it a little bit more in my wrists and arms. And I felt a little bit of weakness in my arms. I, I've been blind since birth. My brother, I had a twin brother who, who had ALS at the time. I remember getting a, a Braille condolence letter and realizing that I was having more trouble reading than maybe even a month ago. I was conducting my brother's memorial service and I I really had to memorize a poem I was going to recite and pretty much memorize the order of the program because I could barely read it and uh, I was painfully slow at deciphering the braille. I, I tried holistic uh, purported cures from the internet. Uh, I tried physical therapy eventually, but I had a wonderful one. And she just said to me after six weeks, this isn't really improving your sense of touch. I think you probably should go back to your GP and, and explore other options like surgery or see what she suggested. So I went to her and I think eventually I went to a neurologist and then had an MRI, and then things really kicked into high gear because I had barely gotten home from doing the MRI, and the doctor's office called and said, the radiologists just saw your pictures, and they're very concerned you should get to the emergency room immediately. And so I did go to the emergency room. I then went to see the neurosurgeon on call. We talked about Options. He said, you definitely need surgery. I would go through the front and then I'd turn you over and do the back. And I was concerned because I'm a singer. What about my vocal cords? And he said, well, there is some risk and, you know, usually it doesn't happen. But if it does, then you can never really get your singing voice back. So I went for a second opinion, which is to Dr. Harrop. 
And I guess in your case, of course, it's not just the singing voice that you were hoping to retain, but also the reading of Braille. I mean, this is, is a really important thing to you and something that would be very different to someone suffering with DCM who's sighted. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I like audiobooks, but as a poet, I really want to see what the shape of a poem is, where the line breaks are, and I really worried that I would not be able to read Braille. And then there's just the informational aspect of it. I have various kinds of labels and tactile markings on appliances, my stove, uh, washing machine and dryer. And I just started wondering how difficult life could be. And you mentioned that you then started to um, visit Dr. Harab. So could you tell us a little bit more about that meeting and what information he was using about you in order to enable him to plan your surgery. Within seconds of looking at my x-ray, he said, wow, you're an interesting guy. You have congenital stenosis and it's really quite high up. He said, I would not go through the front. It's way too close to the vocal cords. I would not want to mess around with it. So I totally, I was relieved to hear that. And then we discussed how urgent the surgery was. And he said, really, you know, it's up to you. You're still functioning. You could wait. But I was quite clear. No, I, I really want to do this as soon as we can. And he, he got that completely, how important the, the reading was to me. Uh, but when I said to Dr. Harrop, what's the likelihood of this working? He said, well, we've been doing a lot of research about front versus back. And he said, I would say National average, it's got a 90% chance of working. I would say from my personal experience, it's never not worked. That was just music to my ears. I felt he raised my hopes. Um, I, I mean, I told him how important Braille was to me, and I could tell that he was very tuned into that. I had the surgery in Jefferson Hospital. I was in terrific hands. When I woke up, you know, the first thing I said, well, okay, I'm alive, that's good. Let's see, the hands, I can feel things. This is really good. What really told me that he was thinking about this all along, though, is when he came to visit me in the hospital early the morning after the surgery, the first thing he said is, how are your fingers? How's the sensation in them? So I knew he had been thinking about that all the time. I have to say, I, there's probably not a day goes by that I don't think of Dr. Harrop whether I'm reading, I can read Braille, um, I read Braille music, uh, so that affects my, my singing life, or I have a guide dog, uh, getting, walking with my dog, uh, just living my life, uh, touching things. I, you know, touch is so important to me, whether it's the touch of doing practical things like tying my shoes or the touch of holding my wife's hand or a friend's hand. It's so, it's so integral to life that it was a huge relief to know that I could go on and, and return to my normal life. As I was getting closer to the surgery, I was noticing that I really had to concentrate much harder to type accurately. And my job is providing technical support, uh, mostly through email to other blind people who are downloading books from the Library of Congress uh, website. So had I not had the surgery or if it hadn't been successful, 
I don't know, you know, I don't know how that would have affected my typing, which also would have affected my ability to write. And so from listening to your story, um, of course, it was very important that Dr. Harab approached your surgery in a very individualized way to make sure that you had the best outcome for your life. So what would be your recommendations to surgeons and healthcare professionals about individualizing treatment for people with DCM? Taking the time to listen to a a patient, what's concerning them most, what they're afraid of losing or what they have lost at this point and would hope to get back. We wondered whether any of your writing, your poems, specifically related to DCM, and if so, whether you would be able to share one with us. I found a f- just a fragment of something in a, a journal, but it was as I was starting to experience DCM. This is just from January of 2016, so about four months before the surgery, I'd say. It's too bad that my first time to read my brother's and my book's in commercially produced braille is marred by the numbness and tingling I feel in my arms and hands. The chronic pain that grabs my neck, even when stationary, but sharper when in motion, can't help but grab my attention as well. I should count myself lucky if all I need to do to correct all this and to one day read these books with unmitigated pleasure is to undergo surgery for spinal fusion, but enough fetching. That's lovely. Thankfully, it was part of a story that had such a happy and, and nice and positive ending. I think about magic and miracles. And I think that as a child, of course, I loved the idea of magic and I love the idea of miracles. But I, I think they always seem like a supernatural phenomenon. And now I believe miracles are pretty much done through human beings. And I think I, I was the beneficiary of such a miracle. I'm very, very fortunate. And it, it is a miracle that this happened. And I know that it doesn't happen for everybody. And that's where it gets tricky. I decided that I really don't know how to, how to put that all together, that uh, some people, their surgeries don't come out as, as well as others. And because it's come to me, I really feel like living in gratitude is, is the way to go. So I don't think we could have found a more powerful example of why this question is so important, Michelle. Absolutely not. And for me, it's Dan's final statement that's so powerful and full of hope and exactly what DCM needs now. He says, now I believe miracles are pretty much done through human beings. And I think I was the beneficiary of such a miracle, which I think is a rather poignant way to end this special podcast series. Thanks very much to Lindsay Tetro, James Harrop and Daniel Simpson for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this in-depth examination of the top 10 research priorities for myelopathy. 
As scientists across the globe now step up to the challenge of researching these priorities, we'll keep you informed about how this targeted research is turning the tide for DCM. But in the short term, we have a few bonus episodes to follow, including episode 11 out soon. And there we'll discuss with Alessia Hatsambilla, the AOSpine Research Project Manager, and Kayo Kukusionio, AOSpine Community Development Project Manager, as well as Lisa Peterman, Consultant in Project Management and Knowledge Translation, exactly how this project can continue to develop and ensure that the messages of Recode DCM are disseminated. And after episode 11, we will be returning to our usual Myelopathy Matters podcast schedule. In the next episode, we will talk to Toto Gronland, who's a facilitator with the James Lind Alliance, and Mark Cotter, who's a spine surgeon, about involving patients and the general public in scientific research. If you're in the myelopathy community and would like to contact us, whether you're a person with DCM, somebody caring for somebody with DCM, or whether you're a researcher or healthcare professional, please do feel free to email us on info at myelopathy.org or visit our website, www.myelopathy.org. This podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. So remember, myelopathy does matter and continue to follow this podcast for more updates. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.